You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. Happy Halloween, everybody. You know, when I started this podcast, I really didn't know if I'd make it to Halloween. (laughs) Seriously. I had no idea. Aaron's here. I'm here. uh, And the show is presented by Window Nation. Uh, Can't begin to thank them enough for their support. If you're in the market for Windows, call 866-90-NATION or go to windownation.com. Tell them we told you to call. Seriously, I, I... when we, when we put this thing together in two or three days, right before the beginning of the football season, I didn't know what to expect. I had no idea if we'd be hurt. You know, I always think about the, the football season in terms of, you know, it starts on labor, right around Labor Day, and then before you know it, it's Halloween, Thanksgiving, we're eating, and it's holiday season, and it's the playoffs. And I'm like, will I be doing a podcast, or will I be working in radio? I had no idea. But... um. I really do appreciate, by the way, all of you who are listening. I can't begin to thank you enough. Uh, Chris Cooley is going to join me in a few minutes. We'll talk about his grades for the Giant game, the trade for HaHa Clinton Dix, and we'll look ahead to the Falcons on Sunday. My friend Scott Jackson will join me uh, during this show today to discuss the Wizards' one in six start. Uh, they lost in Memphis last night by twelve. I've got coaching blunders for the week. Didn't get to those yesterday. But there were like two big stories yesterday in this market. The HaHa Clinton Dix trade, you know, for the Redskins, the five and two Redskins. So people are really starting to pay attention here. And then, of course, Maryland's decision to reinstate football coach DJ Durkin and athletic director Damon Evans, uh, a decision not popular among most media types, and more likely than not, most reasonable people. And I'll get to that in a few minutes. Uh, I do want to start, though, with the Redskins trading a fourth-round pick for Green Bay safety, HaHa Clinton Dix. We'll start with that. HaHa Clinton Dix has been a good player. Uh, Not everybody thinks a consistent player. But for this season, if you believe in this kind of stuff, Pro Football Focus's rating has him as the second-best safety in the league behind DJ Swearinger. I don't personally rely uh, on these ratings, these analytics ratings, Pro Football Focus, some of the others, Football Outsiders. I've heard enough people who really watch film and know what they're watching and know how to grade film. I've heard too many of those people, including Chris Cooley, often disagree completely with rankings of players in certain games. But I can tell you this. Read some of what they're saying in Green Bay. They're not really sweating at this point, the loss of Clinton Dix. But then again, it's strange. The Packers have had a recent history of getting rid of safeties that have, by the way, gone on and performed well. Micah Hyde's playing well in in Buffalo. I always liked Micah Hyde in Green Bay. Morgan Burnett is in Pittsburgh starting and playing well. So there's been a recent willingness for some reason for the Packers to part with safeties who can actually play. He's a free agent at the end of this year, so in essence a rental for the Skins unless they can re-sign him. They gave up a fourth. No problem at all with that. It's the going price for a player like him with an expiring contract. I'm interested, I'm always interested, in the other side of Redskins trades. And you, you need to understand if you're just new to this situation, the Redskins situation, or this town. The Redskins have been the mark. In the league, they have been the one on the wrong side of many deals. They've been taken to the cleaners so many times that when they make a trade, my first instinct is to say, Well, why did the other team do what they did? 
And, you know, that's my default. It, it may be outdated. It's my default. Uh, look, with the Packers, you can say, hey, he's going to be a free agent. Uh, they want to get something for him. That's fine. But they're in a playoff race. They have, according to what I read out of Green Bay, no obvious replacement for Clinton Dix right now. Um, if they had lost him in free agency, they would have ultimately gotten back a compensatory pick for him. But, you know, as I mentioned, the Packers have let some good, young, productive safeties leave in recent years. So maybe they just don't have a good feel for the position or don't put great value on it. I don't know. But again, I don't really have a problem with a fourth rounder for a player of his caliber. I view it to be low risk, high reward. Translation, a good move by the Redskins. I would like to know what they think of Monte Nicholson right now. I think Nicholson's speed, range, talent is obvious. I've been a big fan of Monte Nicholson since I saw him in his first few games last year before he got hurt. I thought, wow, that looks like a guy with some talent, speed, range, sort of anticipation. Jay Gruden, remember, in the offseason said that Nicholson was the Jordan Reed of the defense. Translation, he's talented, just needs to stay on the field. And he has stayed on the field so far this year. Yet they felt they needed another safety when most thought the team would be thinking corner if they were going to make a move at all. Now, I'll ask Cooley what he and the team think about the future of Nicholson. Perhaps, perhaps, as much as the Redskins have been in nickel this year, and my estimation is about 75% of the time they've been in nickel, a few games even more than that, perhaps they're going to play three safeties in nickel instead of three corners. We've seen the Stroman, Moreau, um, uh, Stroman and Moreau and Norman combination here in recent weeks, and there have been some it's, – it's not been terrible. Stroman's been beaten a few times. Moreau's been beaten a few times. Uh, maybe they think they can go three safeties. Maybe Dunbar's status – is that he's going to be back, and he says he could be back this week, and maybe they felt like they were okay at corner. I am interested, though, in what they think of Nicholson's future now. A talent, he hasn't played great this year. There have been some busted coverages at times, um, but not recently, though. A um, couple of, of additional thoughts. I didn't think they'd make a move yesterday. I said that on the podcast. Uh, the fact that they did make a move yesterday says one thing definitively. It says they are going for it. Uh, they believe they have a chance to make something happen this year. The division's other two contenders, uh, if you will, had already made moves. Philly got Golden Tate, and boy did Dallas overpay for Amari Cooper relative to the rest of the trade market. But the Skins view themselves, and rightly so, as a team that can do something this year. They're in first place in a division that right now will likely need no more than 10-6 and six to win it. So they're halfway there already. One thing the Redskins decided they didn't need yesterday, Aaron, interestingly enough, was a wide receiver. I thought, I didn't think they were going to make a move. I thought if they made a move, it would be corner. And then the secondary sort of guess would have been wide receiver. That's what a lot of you out there wanted them to do. Now, perhaps they tried, but if they were really going for it, which I think yesterday's move sort of is an, it's an indication that they, you know, they're going for something this year. Um, if they deemed wide receiver to be a shortcoming, uh, they could have gotten one and didn't. Brandon Marshall is out there. He got cut by Seattle. Mm, I don't yeah. think they want him. No. Uh, Des Bryant's still out there. Mm. Clearly nobody wants right. him. Boy, Des Bryant made a big mistake not taking the Ravens deal yeah, uh, last spring. Um, but the Skins didn't make a move for a wide receiver. 
sort of tells me, and I think it should tell you, that if they are concerned about their inability to throw the football, and they may not be concerned about it, they haven't needed, they have not needed to throw the football in three consecutive wins. Right now, they're in the bottom 15 to 20 percent of the league in almost every passing category. If they think it's an issue and they are concerned about it, but maybe they're not, but if they are concerned about it, not making a move at wide receiver probably tells you they don't think it's a wide receiver problem. They think it's a Another problem. Now, Jamison Crowder is coming back at some right. point, so that will be a big lift. I think they're fine at wide receiver. I really do. I don't think that that is, to me, number one on the list would have been another pass rusher. If a Chandler Jones, as an example, had been ex- had been available for something in the neighborhood of, say, a second or a third, do you think I would have thought have about after that. Fowler? Uh, I don't know that we've seen enough from Fowler. Yet I loved him coming out. Um, I I don't know that we've seen enough of Fowler. Where did he end up again? Uh, Los Angeles, the and, Rams. Right with the Rams. God, the Rams have really gone for it yeah. off season and now uh, in season. Uh, we'll get to Cooley in a moment. Chris Cooley will be calling in in a moment. We'll uh, talk about uh, the Giant game, the Clinton Dix trade, and a lot of other things. Um, but let me get to the Maryland decision yesterday, and this is going to be brief. I guess sort of brief for me. It's brief. First, um, the the tragedy in the Maryland football scandal, if you want to label it that way, is not that DJ Durkin and Damon Evans are keeping their jobs. The tragedy is still that Jordan McNair died, and his death, according to the investigation, was so preventable. The doctors and trainers hired to make sure that things like this don't happen at big sports institutions, they cost Jordan McNair his life. They did. I personally don't believe that a culture, however you want to describe it, cost Jordan McNair his life. I don't. Even if the culture were toxic, that wasn't why this young man's temperature and vital signs weren't taken. I don't believe that was about a culture. I don't. It was about acute negligence, gross negligence. And the university is going to have to pay a price for that, a price that will never be enough for the McNair family. The restitution they want can never ever happen because they're not getting their son back. That's the tragedy of this whole thing. I'm not trying to be sort of pious here and, you know, remind everybody of the real tragedy. I know that you know that, but you would think with the reaction yesterday that somehow Durkin and Damon Evans coming back was somehow more egregious than what happened on that field that day with their doctors and trainers. That was acute and gross negligence at the highest level. It costs the kid his life. If I were that kid's parents, it would be just unbelievable to me. And you you never get over it. I'm I know parents who have lost kids. They it'll never ever be something that you get over. But when it was so preventable, um, the toxic culture. The many-paged investigation says that there wasn't a toxic culture, yet many of the details indicate a culture that was at times demeaning, intimidating, and even for the old football salts out there that, you know, say a football training room and a field isn't for the meek and there's a certain toughness that must be built to succeed, even for those old football traditionalists, those old tough guys, some of what was in that report was over the top. So you don't have to call it toxic if you don't want, 
But the adjective most people would use to describe the culture after reading just some of the report wouldn't be wholesome. Because it clearly wasn't. Now, in the past, Maryland has fired without looking, reacted without enough information, not included enough input from those that really cared and knew the athletic department. See the move to the Big Ten as an example, where anybody with a dissenting opinion got muzzled or weren't listened to. They have buckled to public pressure over the years in these situations. Just go back to lefty's ouster after the bias death. I'm not making any of these apples to apples. Don't get me wrong. What I'm saying is Maryland in the past has been very impulsive. So to a certain extent, I have not had a problem with them taking their time on this. Now, presumably, you take your time to get it right, to get all of the information, to make a decision based on just facts, not emotion, not a decision to please the masses or the mob. Because after you reach your decision, whatever it is, you're going to have to live with it. Maryland will. The masses, the mob, they'll be on to their next thing. And trust me, when it comes to Maryland football, the mob will be moving quickly on to the next thing. If you haven't noticed, there isn't much interest in Maryland football these days. The crowd for the Illinois game on Saturday was the size of a woman's soccer game. So the process that they went through of getting all the information, the process of the investigation to gather all of the facts, to not buckle immediately and fire everybody, only to find out down the road that perhaps you had reacted too impulsively, I haven't had an issue with that. And actually, um, on some level, uh, have admired the ability uh of of this group out there to let the criticism of the length of time this was taking just sort of roll off their back. Now, what they did with the information after being patient and gathering all of the facts, I'm surprised. I don't know all of the facts, and I will admit to you that I didn't read the entire report. I had the Cliff's Notes version. I thought Durkin and Evans were gone. I thought Wallace Lowe, the school president, would be done, and he is. He's retiring in June. And despite the cost, I thought there would be a total reboot of the football program. I doubt very, very seriously that this decision was based on football above all else. I've heard that, that it's, oh, this is a typical football program decision. That narrative doesn't make any sense because DJ Durkin isn't Vince Lombardi. If you haven't noticed, Maryland football hasn't been relevant in years. And even when it's had success, Ralph Regan most recently, which is now really 15 years ago. Now, in 2010, he was the ACC coach of the year and they fired him. But the point being that at Maryland, football doesn't rise to the level it does at other schools where football would be put first over doing the right thing. Basketball has always been more important and will always be more important at Maryland. In this day and age of massive dollars for football, Maryland is one of those Power Five conference schools where basketball matters more. It is the minority now in college sports. You know, in the Big Ten, it's really Maryland and Indiana. That's the list of the, of the schools in the Big Ten that care a lot more about basketball than football. The ACC has a lot of basketball for schools. That's where Maryland came from. In most of these cases, well, let me back up. Why did they reach the decision they reached? A decision that is being annihilated by everyone asked to write about it and to talk about it. In most of these cases, by the way, where people are so definitive in their thoughts and opinions, 
most don't have, really most typically don't have enough information to be as definitive as they are. I put myself in that category. In my medium, whether it's radio or this podcast or those that write in print, you're sort of compensated based on bringing it strong. You know, having an opinion and a conviction about something, even without all of the facts, even without all of the information. In most of these situations, you know, the truth is we're usually guessing. Many times an educated guess, but a guess nonetheless. But in this case, in this case, there are 200 pages of supposed investigative facts Now, even with that, we don't know the current business environment. We don't know the number of people who could be impacted either way by this decision with respect to employment. You know, there are people out there who have done the math. And yes, the real real world often dictates that decisions like these come down to money more than doing the right thing because doing the right thing may please the columnists. The right thing may please sports radio hosts once they've, you know, once they've written on this. But once they've moved on to their next thing, after you've pleased them by doing the right thing, you are stuck with the real-world consequences. Donors bailing, costs that exceed revenues, a budget shortfall, people losing their jobs because of that. That stuff comes into play in these decisions. Tom can write the killer column that destroys the decision today. But if they did what he wanted them to do only, they'd be the ones having to fire a lot more than a football coach and an AD to make up for the lost revenue as Tommy's writing his next column on the learners or Ernie Grunfeld. So the decision was probably, more than anything else, educated guess, based on the economics. It just was going to be really ugly to part ways with two meaningful salaries. There's also this possibility that this group of people making this decision really think that DJ Durkin and Damon Evans aren't to blame for not only Jordan McNair's death, but the reckless, if not inappropriate, actions of a strength and conditioning coach. Now, I find it hard to believe that the CEO of football, DJ Durkin at Maryland, can't be held responsible for the actions of one of his employees, in this case, one of his coaches. I would guess that there was a process of pros and cons with this group as they looked at Durkin and looked at Evans, And for some reason, and maybe it's inexplicable to all of us, the pros outweighed the cons. The decision's been universally shredded. The mob will leave and move on to the next thing. Um, But still, the reputation of the university as a whole has taken a hit. But we've learned, haven't we, from recent, uh, not apples-to-apples comparisons, but recent situations that predictions of long-term doom at Penn State, Michigan State, and North Carolina, that those things didn't really come to pass. And perhaps the school thinks that the current predictions of university doom and football program doom will, too, not bear out to be accurate. Uh, I will say this, in the short term, DJ Durkin's going to have to be one hell of a salesman. He's going to have to sell his team that the world just didn't end, as everybody's writing about. Three players walked out, three out of 100-plus, so I don't want to make a big deal out of that. This clearly didn't result in like a union strike walkout. All right, Three players walked out. Um, Durkin's going to have to sell recruits that Maryland isn't hell. And their parents. And the parents of the recruits, that Maryland, that he isn't Satan and Maryland isn't hell. 
He's recruited well. This is something that many of you may not know. Better than any Maryland coach in recent memory. He put together the last two classes were top 25 recruiting classes. That's not done in football at Maryland very often. It's done a lot in basketball. All right, they got a top 10 recruiting class coming in this year. Not in football. And you know what he's going to have to do? And this is brass tacks and perhaps harsh. He's going to have to win. He's going to have to win and he's going to have to win big, and he's going to have to win soon. And he's going to have to do so with an understated public persona. This incident has put him in position to only do the right thing moving forward, never talk about what the right thing is to do, because no one's going to pay attention to him. It's all about actions, not words with him. This is going to be very important. If I were his advisor, I would say, you want to stay employed? And actually, you know what I thought about yesterday? I thought about maybe he didn't even want to come back at this point. You wonder, with all that's going on, if he actually even wanted to be reinstated. I I think that if he wanted to go away and and taken some sort of a buyout, they would have been more than happy to do that. I think he was fighting for it, and I think that's why a big reason he got his job. I'm not saying that he didn't want to—that he would have preferred to have not come back um, without money. I think he wanted to get paid to move on to the next thing, being an assistant somewhere in three or four years after this whole thing got flushed, you know, out publicly. I, I, I think they could have. Uh, I think publicly, they could have agreed on a buyout if that's what he wanted. Well, look, the the bottom line is, um, he, he's got to be a hell of a salesman, selling his own program, selling the recruits and the parents' recruits, and I think that's one of those things that we we could potentially be exaggerating in terms of the impact on his recruiting. Time will tell, um, but he's the one that will be inside those homes pitching if he gets that opportunity. Maybe he won't get that opportunity with a lot of players. Uh, that would be uh, that that would be a telltale sign that it's going to be impacted. But uh, you know, again, believe it or not, the only chance he has is to win and repair his image by winning with an understated public persona. Don't talk about what happened or what that you're doing the right thing. Nobody's going to believe you. Win and let your actions speak over the next, you know, this next part of your professional career. Uh, other than that, I, I, bottom line is, yeah, I'm really surprised. <laughs> I mean, I said it was going to be brief, and then I got rolling here, and it wasn't very brief. But the bottom line, I, w- I, I wasn't totally surprised yesterday because you knew that I knew that I had I mean, some there, information there that this rumor, there were yeah, rumors that out this there. may be happening. But if you had told me this two or three days ago, yeah. I would have been floored. Floored. I didn't think there was any way it could happen. Here's here's the the I think the most frustrating thing is just I, I thought that press conference was terrible yesterday. I thought I thought the I mean the main reason they basically if if you want to bring him back bring him back with conviction. What they said with oh he's a first time head coach he didn't basically said he didn't know better. That's ridiculous. That's an absolutely ridiculous statement. I, I, Same with Damon Evans. Wow, they they kind of brushed that aside. Oh, he was interim, but he was given his job based on how, quote-unquote, how amazing he was at his interim job. That's why he got the job back in June. So there, there's something wrong there. Look, uh, this is uh, – we're both alums. We're both lifelong fans, even beyond that, of Maryland sports, Maryland basketball in particular. 
Um, and I will just say this, I think over the years, they have really struggled with public relations, sort of like the Redskins have. And they had a really good PR guy uh, in, in Zach Bolno for, for years who, who left to go to Mason. But they're, they're, they've had these issues before and they always um, seem to botch them. I Again, I'll, I'll say this, I'm not... I, I, I don't have a problem with the length of time this took. It's always been their past sort of to be impulsive and to fire without information and to react impulsively and emotionally. And I, I, it's still shocking. The decision they reached is shocking. And again, I, I will say this. They don't have they can they can write and and they can say it wasn't a toxic culture. But if you read even the Cliff's Notes version, uh, it was not, you know, it, it wasn't cozy and comfortable either. It wasn't wholesome. It wasn't benign. There was something, you know, that was in, over the top. Some of the actions were over the top. Uh, anyway, let's get to Chris Cooley right after I tell you about Window Nation. Window Nation is my favorite window company. You know that I'm good friends with Harley and Aaron. They own Window Nation. They're believers in this podcast and me. They supported me in radio for over a decade. If you trust me, trust them. Uh, they will it, look, you don't even have to trust anybody. They're giving out a free estimate. If you call them up, they'll come to your house for a free quote. So there's no risk in at least having one of their salespeople come out and give you a free quote. Temperatures are falling fast. It's a great reminder that your window, pun intended, for getting new windows installed before the holidays and snow hits is closing. While most window companies are experiencing 12-week lead times, Window Nation can do it in less than half the time and save you half the money. Call today. Get two free windows for every two you buy. Buy four, get four free. Buy six, get it's six free. There's no limit. There's only one thing better, though, than free windows, and that's free financing. And for the next two weeks, Window Nation is offering no interest for five years. New windows now, no interest for 60 months. Call the window company that over 80,000 homeowners, including me, have already trusted to take advantage of this amazing offer now. Getting two free windows for every two windows you buy and 0% interest for five full years. Visit windownation.com and save this winter and forever on your energy bills. Eliminate those nasty drafts and start enjoying all the benefits of new windows. Windownation.com or call 866-90-NATION. Scott Jackson coming up uh, in a little bit. Uh, we'll talk about the Wizards debacle of, of a game last night. They're 1-6. Get to coaching blunders for the week as well. But Chris Cooley is here and he's going to... Um, spend some time with me, which I appreciate. And if you don't know this, Cooley's got a podcast up now to redskins.com. And then any way you can get a red, a podcast, you can get Cooley's podcast, which includes on Tuesdays, his offensive film breakdown. And today you'll be doing your defensive film breakdown, right? That is correct, Kevin. All right. I want to talk about the giant game, but I want to start with the news from yesterday. Your reaction to the trade for HaHa Clinton Dix. I think initially I was surprised that they traded for a safety. I'm pleased. I, I, my reaction is pleasant. I would have loved Ple to see pleasant. them trade for <laughs> like a Demarius Thomas. I thought I was big going into that. And, that. and I said that yesterday without really saying, I know exactly what you're getting at of Demarius Thomas at this point, but I just like the speed guy at, at receiver that, that could really stretch the field and really win one-on-one. -on -one. And I think Demarius Thomas is that guy. I didn't watch a bunch of Demarius Thomas, but – that kind of person would be would be big. I know Golden Tate was available that the Eagles got as well. But, you know, Kevin, this defense is something that they're completely relying on. Ha-Ha Clinton-Dix is a very good safety. 
and I'm not sure exactly what they do with him. You know, haha, dicks, Clinton dicks. What do you call him? Just haha, right? Just haha. Yeah, I mean, one of those guys that plays a lot. Of- <laughs> don't you think? Like, have you noticed this? That basically everybody in sports media has just referred now to the Alabama quarterback as Tua. They just call him Tua. They don't try to pronounce his last name. So we'll just. Well, you, can, you still can't pronounce his last name. Tagliavova. <laughs> <laughs> You're not even close. I, you know what? I have to look at it phonetically to say it correctly. Tagaviola. Oh, Tagaviola. Right. Yeah, Tagaviola. Very good. Remember we did this last year we, yeah, for, for I don't know, 30 minutes, minutes and you could, you could still never get it? I know. You you were really... You know, we would do it phonetically. We would do it in every different way. You couldn't say it. Well, the problem with you is you do this this thing with your T's, and it just was it was uncomfortable to listen to after uh-huh. a while. But anyway, um, back to Clinton Dix. Back to HaHa. Um, the one... Th- like, you, you said that you would have preferred or you would have thought Demarius Thomas or a receiver. I want to come back to HaHa in a moment. But I also just want to say that I think the decision not to make a move on a receiver tells you what they think of their receivers. Now, Crowder hasn't played recently, so he's going to come back, and so that's an addition. But I said in the open of this podcast today that a move for a wide receiver, the fact that they didn't make a move for a wide receiver, essentially tells you they don't think wide receiver is the problem with their pass offense. Well, that's fine. I said on my podcast yesterday, not making a move at a wide receiver position is also not having to you know, pull that little card out of your back pocket that says we might not have got the exact guys we wanted as we went into the season because we still have them all when Jamison Crowder gets back. Right. You know, the one nice thing about not taking any receiver at this point is you still you put that card back and you go, yeah, you know, we believe in our guys. They're coming around. There, There's a part of the passing game that's a problem that that's Alex Smith, and there's a part of the passing game that's a problem. That's the wide receivers, and you know, obviously, they feel content with where they're at. They don't want to go out and get anybody. You know, you you look at Demarius Thomas next year. You're gonna have to pay him like he's a 17 million dollar cap hit next year, so it's a big time number on the cap next year. And maybe you didn't want to try to negotiate anything with Golden Tate, and so. No, you didn't worry about it, and you said, "Hey, look, we're going to work on defense, and we'll see what happens with with Dix." And the other thing that I like is you got you still have ten draft picks because they have all those comp picks from all the right. all the draft picks that went what from the 2014 draft to other teams this year. So you had a ton of picks. I have no problem giving up a fourth. You stack up on defense. I'll be interested how they play him. You know, he played a lot of free safety in Green Bay. He played a lot of too high safety. He didn't play as much in the box safety looks for the Green Bay Packers. And so I'm wondering, is that now allowing DJ to be in, in, in the box safety more? And, and what does Monte do? Do you do you go with more three safety looks in your dime package and your nickel package? Does Josh Harvey Clemens come off the field now? Because, you know, Josh Harvey Clemens really played instead of Zach Brown and, right. and passing situations and so does that keep him on the field because personally if they're in an empty set i'd much rather have a guy like haha clinton dix in the in in the back and monte and dj covering the backs and tight ends than than in a, than a linebacker not that josh hasn't done a good job but I've, i'd rather have db type of guys doing db type coverage things and so he gives you the opportunity to do that and the other thing you can do when you when you sign Ha-ha, as you say, hey, look, Troy Apke got hurt. He's on the injured reserve. We had to get another guy at safety. We went out and got the best guy we could get at safety for another safety. It's also an indication, um, this team making a trade deadline move, that they're going for it to a certain degree, don't you think? Well, yeah, but you're, you're sitting there at 5-2. Of course you're going for it. I think you have to go for it. 
I don't know. And here's the thing. It's it's a fourth-round pick, okay? And I get that the, the fourth-rounders have value, but the Redskins do have a bunch of picks loaded up into this next year's draft. You're saying, do we sign a, a random free agent safety who's hanging out out there who hasn't been playing, or do we sign a guy that we that we love, that we, we had a game plan against, that we saw this year, that we think is going to be a big addition to our team? And I think they made the right move in doing that. I, I love when teams make trades to address their need in the middle of the season. I also think it's hysterical because you hear – over and over and over again how important training camp is and these guys got to get the reps and we're working together and we're trying to get everyone on the same page and haha clinton dix is going to play next week (laughs) like yeah these these schemes are so complex and so tough that you need six weeks of training camp and all the otas and it's not like he hasn't been playing and it's not like he doesn't understand football but in one week one guy will pick up the entire defense and he'll go out and play yeah, I, th- I think that's a good point, too. I mean, it's a fourth-rounder that if you lose him, you'll eventually get that back. Um, it is – they're 5-2. and two. Of, of, of course, they're going for it. I, I think it just – from their I stand- think that's a good point you made, and you may have made it earlier, that if you lose him, you get that comp pick back for the 2020 draft. Right, so you're is, essentially not losing anything if you don't re-sign him in free agency. Which is also why I, I was a bit curious as to why Green Bay, who's off, also in a playoff race and, and also should be going for it, and apparently, according to what I've read out of Green Bay, don't have obvious replacement answers. They would have gotten a fourth rounder had they lost him in free agency as well, but they were willing to deal him now. I, you know, I always think about it from the other uh, team's view as well. Um, I think that's interesting. But your your point is a good one. They're five and two. Here, here's what it is: we haven't been in this position in so long for them to make a move to really go for it. So it seems unusual because it is you brought up dj swearinger you actually brought up something that i brought up which is as much nickel as they've played maybe their nickel will consist of three safeties moving forward not three corners i don't know but swearinger when he came out we both loved him when they signed him out of arizona i of course saw him as an in-the-box safety um which is where he had some success in arizona you saw uh with your expert level you saw his ability to do everything as a safety and you loved that signing of DJ Swearinger. How good is he right now? He's exceptional right now. And yeah, I, I think allowing him to do more really let him grow into the position in the NFL. And that's that's what he did in Arizona. He played everywhere in Arizona in that Betcher defense that we actually saw against the Giants last right. week. But he played everywhere in the safety world, everywhere in, in the secondary in Arizona. And I think that helped him have a massive grasp. He didn't do very well in Houston as a down-in-the-box safety, just that guy. And I think kind of broadening his reach there in, in terms of playing everywhere has been great. And then in the second year of this defense, where it did take him a little bit of time to understand some things, in, in my opinion. He made some big plays last year, and you could see the football IQ. But he is he's awesome right now, Kevin. I mean, he is all over the field. He is disguising coverages at a, at a very high level. I mean, to talk about the first pick that he had in the game, yeah. he, he, the, Eli Manning thinks it's man-to-man coverage. And DJ does a great job showing what looks like man-to-man over the tight end, and then they drop to three deep, four underneath. And he plays through a, a pick by the tight end to get a, a a jump on the inside, the short in route that, I, that I'm now describing as the shin route. Short in, shin. You get that? Yep. You like that? Uh, it's okay. Short in. But it's the one that Beckham was shin. running the one that Beckham was running. That was a big-time play. Oh, it's a huge But play. it's not just that. I mean, he's involved in the run game. He's making plays all over the field. He's, he's t- turning teams over. 
I look, I know that Mason Foster's the defensive captain, but as far as the as far as the communication goes and everything in the secondary, GJ Swearinger's been elite. Uh, okay, so let's go back to the Giant game for a moment, and then I want to hear about some of the offensive grades and just talk about the defense in, in general. The the Giant game was, I, I thought, in, I don't think you and I have actually talked since the game. I forget if we talked on Sunday night or not. Um, I don't think we did, actually. Uh, I thought it was a very impressive win from this standpoint, Chris. They, this is the kind of game, the kind of trap game coming off a big win over an arch rival, an emotionally draining win over the Cowboys the week before. This is the kind of game they would typically go and lose or play poorly in. Not only did I not think that they played poorly, I thought they looked ready. I thought they uh, were, were coached well in this particular game, and they got through it with a win, which to me is significant. What did you think? I think he summed up almost everything about what I thought about the way they played in that game. They turned it up another level defensively. Our defensive front is exceptional right now. You know, you put those five guys in a 3-4 scheme, and they are all very good. Payne, Allen, Ioannidis, Kerrigan, Preston Smith on the edge. I don't mind either of Parnell McPhee or Ryan Anderson coming in. I think there's really no drop-off when those two guys come in outside on the edge. And you're creating real pressure in the run and the pass game. And so it's making it hard for anybody to get things started. It's also helping your coverage in the back end. And so you're seeing some some interceptions and you're seeing some big-time plays. They can time things up and they can jump routes. I love that. But they're playing with the real enthusiasm on defense, and I think that's been contagious. And once you see a couple guys start making plays, it's not just that game that it carries over. It's the next week. It's I want to be the guy that has two and a half sacks like Ioannidis. I was this close to making this play. Man, I could get this pick. They're building on that. It's huge. It's it's exciting. It's contagious, and it's fun. And I think it, it's more than just getting a coach getting you ready at that point. It's we know we're actually good, and so let's go be very good. You know, offensively, they're still not turning the ball over, which I love. Alex Smith didn't get sacked in the game, and he didn't throw a pick in the game. And I know that you had the one AP fumble that, that hurt you in that moment. But ultimately, they're not turning the ball over. They're, they're controlling time of possession. It's not pretty on offense. It really isn't. They missed a lot. There's some things out there that, that they could have. I think that there's some adjustments that they could make, which I, honestly I thought they did do a good job in the second half adjusting to running the ball with some zone run scheme stuff. But it, it's growing to some extent, on offense, it's slow, man. It's a slow pace that they're growing at. But you build while you you win, it's much better than building while you lose. And we no, talked about that last week. Yeah, no doubt. Um, who's the most impactful of the three defensive linemen? Payne, that's Allen, or Ioannidis? That's Could, everyone's question. Oh, it is? So, okay, because I, I, I think every I, th- I think I've heard everybody ask that throughout the week. I've seen it everywhere on Twitter. I'm going to answer it in this way. If I were to do a draft, a hypothetical draft, I'm going to take Jonathan Allen first. Because I think he's the best in terms of transitioning his his rush to pass rush. I think he's the best in terms of his ability to win one-on-one. So he's going to dictate the most double teams, and he's going to dictate the most attention. But because of the other guys playing at a high level, it makes it really hard on everyone else. Uh, Deron Payne is very tough to block in the run game. He's he's a bull, man. <laughs> have you Have you seen him in person? He looks uh, like a bowling ball. Yeah, when they drafted and him, and, we were out there. Yes, and a muscular dude at that. It's not just a him and Allen. They're not fat. <laughs> Either's Ionitis. Ionitis is ripped. Well, Al Allen like, to me does it, it isn't even necessarily built like an interior defensive lineman. He's just an athlete. No, he's just a phenomenal athlete. They all, Allen looks like Aaron Donald in person. 
as far as body type, which is funny because five years ago you've looked at those guys and said, yeah, they can't hold it, hold themselves up against the run, but they are. I mean, and they're doing a great job with it, and they're doing a great job playing gap control. I, I don't, I can't really say that you'd have to have one over the other. I just think John Allen is the most naturally talented of three. But I think because of his play, the other two being very good football well, who players. Who would you are, draft second? I think I draft Payne second, and that's. I, I think it's tough to take anything away from what Matt Dionidas has done. Yeah, you know the the sacks to me. Watching Sunday, they had seven sacks, and Ionitis had two and a half, and Kerrigan had one and a half, but. There were so many other players that were basically all in on it. Like, it could have been any of the other players because they were all there. There were there were seven sacks in the game. There were four of those sacks in which it could have been anyone else. It really could have been right. anyone else. And it, there's an impact of all of them being that close to getting those sacks because they're collapsing the pocket, and Eli Manning had nowhere to go with the football. Same as against against Dak to some extent with some of their sacks. He's just not, got nowhere to get out of the pocket. There's nothing to escape to, and so it's someone that's going to get a sack. I mean, Preston Smith very well could have had three sacks in that game. Yeah, I thought he played really well too. Um, I thought he played exceptional. All right, so – the uh, we we knew that they would be improved defensively if they were healthy. We felt the same way about them last year, and if they had stayed healthy, we're now seeing what last year could have been had Allen and Ioannidis and Foster, you know, been on the field for much of the year. They still had all of the injuries on the offensive line, and that would have impacted them offensively. But you know, we remember at the end of the season, we we you know did the what if they had stayed healthy this year? What would it, what would the difference have been? I think now we're seeing that defensively, the difference would have been a minimum of two games. You know, they would have been 9-7. and seven. Now, last year, that wouldn't have been playoff-worthy in the NFC, but they would have been a far different football team. They've gone from dead last in rush defense to second in the league right now in rush it's, defense. And it's hard to just quantify it as two games. You also add Deron Payne into the mix, another first-round pick who wasn't here last right, year. that's true. So maybe, maybe, maybe it's not two games. Maybe it's four games. With the way they're playing on defense right now, how the way they scored on offense. To some no, I'm just I'm saying without pain last year, if Ionitis, if Allen, if Foster, if they hadn't been hurt, we saw it in the first four games when they were healthy. They were a different football team defensively last year, but they just lost the key players that would have allowed them to be a much better run-stopping team. Remember, in the first few weeks, they were an excellent rush defense, and they finished 32nd in the league because they lost those players. Yeah, and even when Matt Ioannidis came back for a month, he had that big cast on exactly. his hand, so it's hard for him to play in that situation as well. And and it just wasn't the same. It's but it, not the same when you lose your when you lose more than a couple of key players. They also lost throughout the year almost every single offensive lineman at one point. All right, so Sunday they play Atlanta, and New Orleans was the the first real test in terms of facing an offensive team. The Packers were a test, but Aaron Rodgers was banged up that day, and he wasn't 100%. And they failed the test in New Orleans, and they get to take this test again against an Atlanta team that can really score and can really throw the football. Is this much more of a reality uh, test for this team, and uh, which it is? How do you think they'll do against Atlanta versus what they did against New Orleans a month ago? So I think one of the biggest differences for Atlanta right now versus New Orleans is Atlanta does have a couple of their offensive linemen out. So you're going to have a couple backups playing for the Atlanta Falcons, and that that's tough for them. 
uh, Adam Levitri's out, and shoot, I forget the other name of the other guy that's out. But they have two starting offensive linemen. It's not out, Tom and they Compton have, anymore. No, Tom Compton <laughs> is in Minnesota with yeah. Kirk Cousins. Buddies back together and reunited there. They also have Devontae Freeman out, so you have some injuries. I'll be I'll be excited to see how they play because I think that Atlanta still does a very good job of moving Matt Ryan. They have a great boot game, and they get him outside of the pocket, and so you'll have some challenges there where he'll be able to buy some time. Julio Jones is exceptional. Calvin Ridley's playing great. Mohamed Sanu's doing a heck of a job, and so they have some very good receivers in Atlanta. Also, Austin Hooper, the tight end's having a heck of a year. So not going to struggle covering Logan Paulson, our guy, Logan Paulson, but they have some players there, and so you're going to have a challenge. I think they're going to be much better against Atlanta. I think Atlanta will struggle to run the ball because everyone seems to struggle to run the ball. I think they're going to hold Tevin Coleman the way they've held every other back. And so at that point, it's, you know, how do you manage Julio Jones? Can you keep him from having any bigger game than, I don't know, 120 yards, 130 yards like Odell had? How do you manage Calvin Ridley? Can you keep him from getting big plays down the field? If you can just manage those big plays, you should be fine against Atlanta, who's right now terrible on defense. And it's crazy that I say that because I don't think they're going to be, but they've just had so many injuries on defense as well. Yeah, they, they, gonna, I think it's going to be a battle. I do because we just we don't score enough points right now. But I think that I'm really excited to see us against this offense. I, and Matt Ryan is not Drew Brees. He's just not. But if we blow coverages the way we did against Drew Brees, Matt Ryan is good enough that he'll take advantage of that. And I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, Matt Ryan isn't uh, Dak Prescott or Eli Manning either. Um, no, he's, he's and, and and that and that giant offensive line is the worst I've seen personally in years in the NFL. I don't know why people put it solely on Eli. It's not solely Eli's fault. Now back to Atlanta's defense for a moment. They've been banged up, but they do it. I agree with you. They've got playmakers. I mean, I like Vic Beasley. I like the guy from UCLA, McKinley, as a pass rusher. They've got some players. Um, and that sort of leads to offensively, you said slow, you know, improvement, you know, maybe too slow improvement week to week. Was Alex Smith better against the Giants than he was against the Cowboys? Yeah, I think he was a little bit better against the Giants than he was against the Cowboys. I wouldn't say much, much better, but I think he's a little bit better against the Giants than he is against the Cowboys. And, and I would really look at it and I would say, you know, if he could – if he could, let's just say collectively there are 12 plays that he'd like to have back. If we could take that number from 12 to make it 8, which ultimately would would be a realization of maybe one more scoring drive, you're fine. You're, you're, you're absolutely fine in that situation. He's just got to manage his misses just a little bit better. Will- and, and to me, the, the, just some of the inaccuracy from Alex – Right are the things that I'm surprised with. I'm fine with him not making a, a right read or working something or scrambling a couple times when maybe he doesn't have to scramble if he just makes the throws that I know he's capable of making. Like the Jordan Reed fade throw on third down where he threw it way over his head. Before that the 53-yard field goal, like the, yeah. Yeah, the, the, those are tough. Um, the Jordan Reed where he threw it over his head on a third and one. Third and one. I actually think, I actually think Jordan fooled him on that a little bit. It, it's no excuse. Jordan can go in or out. I thought Jordan should have went in. He went out. I think Alex thought he was going to go in. They'd run that route three times in the game. Jordan had broke in and got catches on all three of them. He had the inside. He usually takes the inside, and all of a sudden he hooks it up outside. I think he tricked him a little bit. No excuse for Alex. He's still going to make that throw, and Jordan's allowed to go wherever he wants to go. But, you know, you get a couple of those throws back, and I think Alex is going to be fine. 
Well, yeah, the, the deep shot to Richardson was that was that win? The deep shot. So, so the deep shot to Richardson is is not good on on multiple levels. And here, here, I'll go to the first, the second play of the game, which is a play action pass where he went over the middle that, to Richardson. That nearly got picked. That nearly got picked. Okay, so they're this, basically the exact same concept, the two plays off of play action. And these are the plays that I think we really, if we want to be great, we have to start hitting. The first time they're playing in a three-deep coverage, he's looking to Josh Doxson, who's running an in, out, and in deep. It's like an angle route, 10 yards in, 8 yards back out to the angle, and then post. They call it a rage route. It's rage, man. Uh, he gets deed up. As he's getting deed up, the safety's cutting the crossing route from the other side. That's Richardson. If you want to throw that crossing route, you've got to go right now. But because the safety's cutting it, man, it's hard. It's hard to not take that deep shot to Doxon. He's late to the crosser. If you're late to the crosser, you just throw the check down in that situation. Just get out of it, survive it, throw the check down. The next play, the play you've initially started talking about where he takes the deep shot to Richardson, the safety, and same type of look, the safety bails, and he's deep to the corner post, which is Richardson on the corner post. As the safety bails, he's never in a position where Richardson can get over the top. You've heard me say over and over with the right. safety, if he's even with the safety, he can be leaving. He's even, he's leaving. There's no chance. And so Mo Harris is wide open on the crossing route in that situation. So that's one where he would have liked to hit the crosser. So, I mean, and the throw is way off. The throw is actually so far off that he <laughs> should have been picked. The but safety, it was too, yeah, the safety exactly. can't even get into it because it's so far off. I also don't think it was a very good route by Richardson on the outside. He didn't really push hard enough to the corner to get that separation. But that said, you know, I didn't like the throw in any way, shape, or form. And I think the crosser would have been the answer right there. And so, you know, those, those are looks at that's Jay's offense. I don't know if that was any any what Andy Reid had done. I know that Alex has had high to low reads like that with safeties before, but it's a new offense. It's an, it's new receivers that he hasn't seen run these routes, and so he's just get he's just feeling his way through it. I thought that he was improved for this reason more than any other compared to the Dallas game. I thought he was more patient and didn't bail on plays quickly like he had been doing I thought he he tried to make more plays by being more patient in the pocket yeah I think in doubt in the Dallas game he had five or six scrambles that there was no way he needed to scramble and right. I think in this game uh, the, the few scrambles that he had I thought were relevant scrambles so you know moving up in the pocket like these are little things but he, a couple of scrambles I'll describe to you. One, moving up in the pocket to jo- Josh Doxson on a shallow cross where Josh Doxson ends up getting the first down around the edge on a little crossing round. That's a big-time play by Alex. That's, that's an off-script play where he's got to move up. He gets it to Doxson. I love that. Two, this is even smaller, but it's, 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 I like it. He had an awkward little flip to Jordan Reed on a third down and long, right? If you can remember that scrambling around like crazy, Chris Thompson missed the protection. He flips it to Jordan Reed. Jordan gets about five yards, something like that, on a third and 16, third and right. long. Yeah, 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 it was short. Still, if you take a sack, it's minus seven. So you're talking no, you're about right. 12 yards. You're talking about 12 yards difference in field position right yeah. there. He didn't have anywhere down the field. He had a protection issue, which was a, a missed protection. So he has to scramble, and he's, he's doing a great job back there just surviving a bad play and getting the team essentially an extra 12 yards in that situation. And that's why they're flipping the field more times than not. Not taking sacks sometimes can be big. I agree. And he never fumbles back there, and so right. he's good with the ball. He's good at protecting it. And so some, those are some of the good plays that, that he made in that game. And, and so I think the more – opportunities he gets, the more things he sees with his guys, the better he's going to be.
You know, part of my, um, we used to do this together on the show, Redskins beat, you know, the opponent if. Uh, the last two weeks it's been check it down and punt it with better, you know, with without the lost yardage that you would take in a sack. And that's been huge for them. They, they The field position thing, they actually didn't win the field position battle technically on Sunday. Because the Olivier Vernon fumble recovery that took him all exactly, the way down to the other end. That started him in, in that field position, uh, you know, in Redskins territory, really skewed it. But, um, but they, they had, in big spots, Tress Way was able to, flip the field sort of in conjunction with a play that Alex Smith made that was a good play, positive play, rather than a big loss play. Um, all right. The one thing I would say with Alex Smith before we move on is just I would like to see a step up in anticipation, and I think that comes from his understanding of exactly what what his receivers are doing. And so I'll give you, I'll give you a couple plays, and then I'll, I'll end it on Alex since I'm running this now. Yeah, go ahead. The two-minute drill right at the end of the half where you go three and out and punt and give him the ball back. The first play, Chris Thompson. Didn't you, didn't you love the way Jay used his timeouts on defense? Finally? He I knew did. what I to, thought it was, he knew what I thought to it was do. terrific. Yeah. yeah, he knew exactly what to do. So Chris Thompson's running a choice route on first and ten. He's going to come wide open in the middle of the field. Alex needs to know that he can let it go. But he's just not worked with Chris Thompson enough on these choices to know that for sure he's going to break in on the choice route. And so he starts to get pressure from Laval in the pocket, and he slides, and then he dumps one in the dirt five feet in front of Chris Thompson in short. There should have been a completion. Chris Thompson was going to be open. He was open. You could see I, – I could see because I've watched Chris do this a million times in his body language where he was going. It's just it's, it, Alex felt a little pressure and was late to it. And then on third down on that same drive – have the same route by Chris Thompson with the same looking coverage that you'd like. You'd add a quarter's coverage where the middle's going to be open, he breaks in, but he doesn't work that side. He works the other side, and he works Paul Richardson on what you call an arrow route. And so it's three guys. Richardson's the underneath. He's running about six yards at a little bit of an angle in with the ability to break back out to the flat. Alex ends up throwing it back out. It looks like it's a high wild ball outside to Richardson, but it's not. Richardson had inside coverage or inside leverage. He should have come back out of that thing. And so just that timing, that anticipation of exactly what his receivers are doing, those are two things where he's not making the wrong read. He's not making the wrong throw. It's just a little bit off with his guys. Uh, what did you grade, Alex Smith? C+. Plus. Okay. Um, wh- what did you grade, Alex Smith? A C, up from a C- minus the week before. Uh was your highest graded player Adrian Peterson or Brandon Sheriff? Both of those guys were in my highest graded player range. I thought AP was tremendous throughout the game. Um, obviously, the fumble would be one of the one negatives that he had. I think one thing with AP is he could have a little bit more patience on some of his cuts where he's bouncing to the outside very quick, but still he's got enough speed to get outside, which I've been very impressed with. Sheriff was tremendous. I mean, in the one holding penalty that I, I think downgraded him a little bit, or he would have been an A across the board. And uh, to, to me, ultimately, the offensive line was all very good, exceptional in the pass game. I mean, there really wasn't a lot of pressures. And so I thought they did a great job. Trent, a couple times with Vernon, got beat inside, but that's after he hurt his thumb. And then he ended up having to come out of the game. And you know he's hurt a little bit if he's got to come out of a game. Right. So I thought the line did a pretty good job. Was yeah. Vernon Davis your lowest graded player on offense? I'm just guessing. I haven't listened to it yet. Um, 
there the receivers were all pretty average. The receivers were all in the C range. Doxon was just a little bit above the C range. Vernon was in the C range. I didn't think Sprinkle played his best game, but he doesn't play a whole heck of a lot. No one was below a C in this game. Um, last thing, uh, the Monte Nicholson thing. Um, back to HaHa. Uh, I loved Monte Nicholson. You know that that I thought, and I think you you saw this clearly. You you saw the speed, the range, the whole thing. Um, and you know, Jaden, remember this summer said Monte Nicholson's my Jordan Reed on the defense. You know, sort of implying an incredible talent. He's just got to stay healthy. Well, he's been healthy. So I'm assuming that this move was made in part because Monte Nicholson wasn't playing well. Is that, is that a fair assumption? I don't think Monte Nicholson's playing quite at the level that they would have hoped that he would have played at this point. And I think a big part of that is just a couple plays that you'd say, what, what are we doing here, Monte? You go back to the Saints game where he gets a little bit, I don't know, a little bit overexcited and pushes Kamara over the pile on a Kerrigan sack where right. that drive moves on. You go to the last game, the one deep shot where he just doesn't look at the ball at all and just completely KOs the receiver and gets a pass in reverse. Like, just yeah. look at the ball, man. But I don't think Monte Nicholson's playing at a bad level. I wouldn't I wouldn't say he's he's playing below a C-plus level in any way, shape, or form. I just think it's depth, the trade for HaHa. I think it's wanting to have another guy on the field. It might also be that Quentin Dunbar maybe isn't healthy. You know, you got to consider if Fabian was your slot guy for sure, if Dunny's not healthy outside on the edge right now and Fabian's outside, who do you want to have inside? And then HaHa is one of those guys that can play in there. Or, or Monte's one of those guys that can play in there. I think it's just a depth thing when adding another good player. And I don't think it matters if he's a safety you know, you're going to play him inside. You're going to play DJ inside. It's, it's, it allows you to do some more things. It also, I think, allows you to blitz DJ some more and have some more looks where you trust man coverage on the outside. All right. Um, you have any thoughts about the Maryland situation, DJ Durkin and Damon Evans, the athletic director, being retained after all of this? I know you were a little bit um, at the beginning of this sort of pro – well, go ahead. I'll, you, you, do you have a thought on that? If you don't, just I don't. I, I, you know, don't worry about it. Well, here, look from from working in a college level and working in an NFL level and understanding the conditioning program. I don't think I ever once saw the head coach on the field where we were conditioning. I don't really think I saw the head coach involved with the conditioning program in any way. You know, I I heard a lot of the the negative culture attention. The young players have a hard time being criticized, and I have no problem DJ Durkin is critical of his players if he drops F-bomb after F-bomb. That's college football. That's high-level football. Coaches can do that. They do do that. That does not bother me. You know, have a, have a little bit of self-awareness as a player. Be coachable. Be able to understand some of those things. I, I Look, you and I have talked about this. The situation could have been handled differently at Maryland as it happened in the moments. And it was a, it was incredibly unfortunate the way that turned out, but I don't think DJ Durkin's at fault. I really don't think that either of those two are at fault in any way, shape, or form in that that instance. So, you know, all right, go from there. Uh, Utah State is seven and one. We have not been able to to enjoy this together, uh, but they are <laughs> really really good out in the Mountain West. Uh, I know they should be. They should have beat Michigan State in the first game. They should be eight. No, I know they had a very close game in the opener against Michigan State uh, and lost. I think by seven on the road. 
All right. Thanks for doing this. Uh, Cooley's podcast, anywhere you can get a podcast. You're on iTunes now. You're on Google Play. All of the ways that you can listen to a podcast, but also you can just go to redskins.com and find his podcast there. Clinton's got a podcast. Rigo's got a podcast. Um, You can listen to all of those right there. Uh, I will talk to you later. Thanks for doing this. See you, Kevin. All right. Chris Cooley, everybody. Farish Chrysler Dodge Jeep in Fairfax should be on your list if you're considering something new. Uh, They make it easy for you. I've been friends with Ralph Perkins and Kevin Farish for over a decade now. They're really smart guys. They know what their customers want, and they make it easy for you. I promise you that if you give them a chance, they won't disappoint. So if you've been thinking about something new, especially if you're thinking about a Jeep or a Chrysler or a Dodge truck or, you know, a minivan, give Farish a shot. They're right there in the heart of Fairfax and Fairfax Circle. You can find out everything they have right now on their website, farishcars.com. They've got live inventory, live pricing. They've got plenty of inventory on their lot. Um, Right now, Jeeps in particular, Cherokees, Grand Cherokees, Wranglers, lots on their lot. Chrysler Pacifica, if you've been thinking about a minivan, you got a big family, the deals are as good on that vehicle as you'll get all year long. Um, Again, farishcars.com, you'll get to their inventory, live pricing and if you head out to Farish ask for Ralph Perkins Ralph is in the store every day he never takes a day off Uh, he's a good friend and at least tell him that you are there and that you heard about Farish uh, through me that would be helpful Um, but really if you're thinking about something new uh, and, and that something new is a Chrysler or a Dodge or a Jeep or a Subaru just at least go to farishcars.com to see what they have. It's, they have great deals. They're terrific with their service department. Their salespeople have been there for over 20 years. You won't be disappointed. All right, let's get to the Wizards and another loss, a one and six start. They lost in Memphis last night, 107 to 95. Um, I tweeted out in watching the first half, John Wall had six turnovers in the first half, and I swear to God, you would have thought that he was, uh, you know, he was he, he was basically held up at gunpoint on all six of them because he complained so loudly uh, that he had been fouled on all of them. But whatever, they're one and six, and this season's turning into a disaster very quickly. Remember, they started two and eight a few years ago and rebounded, but I think that was while John, uh, while John was still sort of recovering from uh, knee issues. Um, I'm going to bring in a good friend of mine, uh, and that is Scott Jackson, who knows everything about the Wizards, loves the NBA, loves the Wizards like I do. Um, first of all, how you doing? Pretty good, man. How you been? I've been all right. I've, I'm doing this podcast. It's going well. Listening to you when you're on 980, you're on uh, again today, 1-4, to four, and the rest of the week as Brian takes one of those you know golf trips that he gets – uh, the the uh, privilege of taking during during seasons, and uh, you'll be on 980 all week, right? Yeah, yep. Uh, I'll be doing a few days of Smoot and uh, one with Lynn, but yeah, it's going to be uh, a lot of uh, a lot of Redskins, and yeah, we'll squeeze in some Wizards. I guess we have to, but it's been an ugly start. And you're right. I mean, this is different. And I've heard a lot of people say, "Well, they were two and eight in their Brooks's first year," but again, that was Brooks's first year. They've been with this coach for three years. John Wall's not on a minutes limit. He's not, you know, he's allowed to play in back-to-backs. Bradley Beal is, hasn't missed three games like he did in that stretch that season uh, due to injury. So this is a whole different scenario. Uh, and, you know, they just don't even look interested, Kevin. They don't even look like they know each other out there, especially when they're trying to play defense, if you even want to call it that. 
Uh, this problem, in my view, is not going to get fixed by uh, Dwight Howard's insertion into the lineup uh, when they get home. Uh, do you agree? Yeah, I mean, look, it can help in the, on, on the boards, but, man, if you're Dwight and, and if you really are dealing with back pain or, or lower buttocks pain or whatever the heck they're calling it, uh, do you really want to go, jump in the lineup with a group of uh, perimeter players that continue to let dribble penetration happen uh, pretty much every possession? And so you've got to come over as a help defender. You know, you see Mahimi fouling at an alarming rate right now, and certainly that's, that's partially on Mahimi, but it's also because he's always trying to cover somebody's tail. I mean, it, it's a disaster, and, and the guards don't seem to be interested in rebounding and, the, uh, you know, in helping out in that regard. And, you know, the, the team hasn't shot the ball particularly well, although they did against Memphis for the most part. But, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think Howard can help, no doubt, but then there's going to be some, you know, there's going to be some adjustments with him coming back in the lineup. I, look, I think the core guys, the three highest-paid players of all, got to look in the mirror. Is starting with DC's point guard. You know, I mean, he's been awful. I mean, he finally made some threes last night, but overall, I mean, whether he's you know he's making threes or not, he's turning the ball over nine times. Uh, he's he's making you know all kinds of mistakes defensively. He gambles too much doesn't sell out. I mean, it's it's a disaster. You know, um, I, I think one of the problems, and I think it's been a problem here um, under Brooks, uh, is – and I think it gets overlooked from a lot of people that just look at numbers and you're not one of those people, you know, basketball, um, the, he doesn't help them out with enough structure and enough of a plan on offense. There is just way too much of standing around ISO ball, occasionally one ball screen and that's it. And what happens with that is that you're not making the other team work on defense. You know, a lot of NBA teams play this way. I'm not suggesting they're the only one, but the Wizards rarely have a plan offensively. And when you play a decent defensive team, you're going to end up with what you ended up with last night wall not knowing what to do there's no plan there's no plan to help him out he had nine turnovers in the game Beal had four should have had another one or two that he got bailed out on when the ball just sort of rolled out of bounds off of somebody's leg when he had clearly lost control of it uh it, it's they they have no offensive structure at all Scott and I don't see that changing and I think it's a big problem and a big reason for where they are you're right, and then if you don't get stops defensively, you don't get to go run and exactly. transition and do all the stuff that gets you easy buckets that keeps them going. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, like, and you said this from early days of Brooks. You said, were you looking at him OKC? And I think a lot of us wrote that off to, well, you know, he was coaching Russell Westbrook. Well, now he's coaching John Wall, and, and, and is he really coaching him? The best offensive structure the Wizards have played in his – now two-plus seasons was when John Wall was on the bench in street clothes last year with Thomas Sadoransky running a lot of the offense, the everybody-eats era, if you will. And, you know, Marching Gortat, for all the bitching and complaining, yeah, he was a drama queen at times, but he said a lot of truth in some of the, the critiques he had about John Wall and this team, and I think it's showing its ugly head right now. And it's awful. There is no structure in offense. And this whole idea, hey, we're going to play John Moore off the ball, well, that's great. He doesn't run off the ball. He just stands in the corner with his hands on his knees. That's right. I mean, he's the least active guy off the ball. He's not a great shooter. My, my feeling was when Brooks said, hey, we're going to get John off the ball more, I thought really what he was saying was, we want John not to dribble so much. And I, and I get that. I mean, give up the ball. I mean, Eddie Jordan went through this with Gilbert Arenas, right? He had to get Gilbert to buy into the fact that you can give up the ball and trust that it may come back to you late in the shot clock if it comes to that. But, you know, again, the more ball movement you have, the better. You know, John, I know he has these great assist numbers, and he's a good passer and all that, and he's gotten some guys paid. But I think the thing that people miss is 
you know, he likes to make the assist pass. He makes the kill shot. He's not a guy that moves the ball quickly in the clock, uh, dribbles too much, and now they're trying to get him out of that, and the offense isn't functioning very well. And, you know, and again, he's not a great outside shooter despite what he did last night. It's really interesting because last night when they made that the, the sort they made a run. They were down, I think, eighteen and they made a run. And Ubre played great during this run, especially on defense. Sure did. But the ball if you go compare those offensive half court sets to the offensive sets with John Wall uh, in, in the game, the ball touches probably exponentially more more hands than than it does with John Wall in the game. And it's not even about that because truly when even they've moved the ball well, which is important with good spacing, there still isn't much of a plan other than to move the ball and keep the floor spaced, which is a plan, but there's not a there's not a ton of structure there. Uh, you made a great point too and I've talked a lot about this. The problem with the Wizards if if they don't rebound or if they don't get stops and they can't run wall is not the same player I would contend that Beal and Porter aren't the same players as well Beal's better in the half court Porter thrives on getting open as a trailer or out in front of a fast break and being able to set up and shoot an open three um, it's just been ugly all the way around and that, and that leads me to this I mean sort of the backbiting a little bit that started to develop you know after the uh, after the loss um, uh, on fr- what was the what was the loss on Friday night before the blowout to the Clippers, uh, the Kings? After the Kings' the loss Kings, yep. uh, in Sacramento, you had Wall saying we've got guys that are worrying about not getting shots and where the ball's going on the offensive end, and then Beal said, you know, we've got our own agendas on the floor. Who are they talking about specifically? Yeah, that's a great question. Are they talking about each other? <laughs> it's the first thing that comes to some mind. Um, you know, I, already t- I don't know if they could be talking about Otto Porter because he doesn't get enough shots up uh, at this point, and, and that should be a point of emphasis to get him more shots. You know, who knows? I just think they talk sometimes. You know what I mean? I think it all sounds good at the moment, and, it, and none of it means anything. and None of it ends in any type of change and results. I mean, Scott Brooks finally said it last night. we got to stop talking about it. But, yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot of this. I mean, I think there's always been the feeling, not, not even a feeling, but I think there's some evidence that, you know, there's there's not a lot of chemistry between those guys and, and Otto and maybe with Otto's new contract last year that kind of ruffled some feathers on this team. I mean, I was at the Toronto game, and I could see it playing as day late in that game when they were trying to come back, and that was game two where, you know, Otto Porter was running the floor hard and he was waiting, you know, in his spot on the baseline corner three Wall, you know, looked at him and decided to make other, uh, you know, moves instead, other passes passes instead of uh, getting him the ball late in that game, which proved to be fruitless for them because he didn't come back. And uh, you just see things like that. And, you know, and then Scott Brooks, you know, is kind of falling into this default of blame auto too. Like a lot of people have, well, you know, he's the highest paid player on the team. Well, it's ridiculous. He's not I the guy who's completely the most money committed to him. Right. I it's completely ridiculous. agree with you. It's, like, it's not, it, not Otto Porter, you know, he, he's a dependent player. Give me a break. It's your, it's your two stars. It's, it's first starts with John and then Bradley. I mean, that's where it starts. He's a totally dependent player. It's a great way to describe him, number one. Number two is that when everybody was complaining in the first two games about he's not getting enough threes, I'm like, look, the last thing this team should be worried about is running plays to get Otto Porter threes. Like, please, like you've got two players that are your cornerstones here. That's not 
not Otto Porter. And by the way, Scott, I actually thought Otto Porter in the first couple of games played pretty well. Like he was a big contributor yeah. in a lot of different ways to what was going on in two games that they actually had a chance to win. <laughs> like the last few, right. they haven't even had a chance to win. Um, here's the the big takeaway or the big picture question that that I want you to you know to to sort of end this with. What can they do about it? I don't think there's anything they can do about it. They're not going to fire Brooks, right? I wouldn't think so. I mean, that's a lot of money. Although I guess there was a report uh, last week um, by by uh, um, I think it was Kurt Heline who said that there was some rumblings that you know the 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 seat could get high for Brooks if they don't turn this thing around. That's hard to imagine, and you know. But let's be honest, too, if you're Ernie Grunfield, can you really, you know, recommend that to your owner and say, yeah, we're going to eat 14 or $20 million, $21 million, really, uh, you know, on this coach that I, you know, recommended highly to come here without then the owner saying to him, well, maybe you should go, you know, because this is your team. Look, they think this is a better team, and on paper it, it, it looks like a better team. In reality, it isn't right now. I mean, the bottom line is these guys got to start buying in, whatever that is. And the thing that you look at, you just ask yourself, well, where's the leadership going to come from? Because clearly John and Bradley, since, you know, Paul Pierce has left, you mean Garrett Temple, who was offering words of advice after <laughs> yeah. in Memphis, the guys, I mean, they have zero leadership in that locker room. And the default is to point fingers and blame each other. And, you know, I heard about, hey, you know, don't you worry about Dwight Howard this offseason. He can't be as, as divisive as marching Gortide. Hell, we haven't even seen Dwight Howard yet, and this team's falling apart of the scenes. So, I, you know, I don't know, man. I, they they got to get better. I mean, I just keep saying it's early, but it's getting you – know, but sooner or later it will get late for them. It, it just doesn't seem like all the stuff they talked about stressing this year, they've even come close to checking any of the boxes. I just love all the people that thought Gortat provided no value at all. They've been out-rebounded in every yeah. single game they've played in. Their screen-and-roll <laughs> offense, when they actually apply it, has been nowhere near as effective without him setting the screens. Um, but, you know, I'm sure I'm sure there were a bunch, bunch of number crunchers who had it all figured out that Gortat was a zero. Um, there, there was something that you just said that I wanted to follow up on, and I'm just trying to think um, – Oh, uh, what I was going to say with respect to the coaches, I, they can't. the The admission that a, that Brooks isn't the right guy in year three with the contract they gave him would be death to Ernie. If it, I mean, I I think it would be. So uh, th- th- those chances to me are slim and none. But I I ha- I have thought about to me the hire was Tibbs. They needed a a structured, you know, possession by possession, both ends of the floor. And I know that that isn't necessarily player friendly all the time. Like Randy, he wasn't player friendly all the time. But this particular core, Wall and Beal, even though they don't think they need it, they need structure. They need a plan. Absolutely. Absolutely. They don't have it. And I don't know if Scott Brooks will ever give it to him. And again, the thing that worries me is. He's just come off like a guy that is just too concerned about going to battle with his stars, and he doesn't want to do it. Um, you know, we saw this last year with some empty promises about lineup changes that never happened. So th- this is this is a big concern if, if they don't turn it around this year. Those rumblings be a ladder. You just look at what Brad Stevens does when he has left in the court uh, in Boston. And, you know, for a while, again, like I said, I think Brooks did a good job with it last year. Wall was out, but he's got to figure out a way to make this team better with Wall in because they're – overly invested in John Wall for several more years, and that's not changing. Nobody's going to take that contract off your hands, especially the way he's playing out. He looks like a diminishing player, and that's scary because he's not that old. I mean, he just really looks like uh, a diminishing player right now, and he's supposed to be completely healthy. So, 
Yeah, they got to figure it out within. I mean, you know, it's not pretty right now. And, you know, again, NBA seasons are long, and teams, the good teams, find a way to fight through this kind of stuff. They're, you just wouldn't expect them to go through it this early. All right, thanks. Good to catch up. Uh, you're on 980 all week long, 1 to 4 in your. And in the spot you occupied for a long time with Brian out, um, enjoy it, and I'll talk to you soon. All right, Kevin, thanks. Let's do some coaching blunders. Bad play calls, clock management gaffes, missed opportunities. It's Coach Sheehan's Blunders of the Week. All right, a uh, couple of them. Uh, you know, there haven't been in the last few weeks, and Coach Patrol, you guys are doing a good job, Um but we haven't had any of those obvious, major sort of gaffes. I actually think there was an interesting strategic decision made by Sean McVay that should have backfired on him and didn't because Ty Montgomery decided to return that kickoff out of the end zone. Uh, the Packers traded him yesterday. Uh, but I'll just start with a couple of them from Saturday. Um, Georgia didn't call a timeout at the end of the first half. Cost them 40 seconds. And what happened in this game against Florida, which, man, these SEC games, I've, I've mentioned it each week. And this week we got another one with the doubleheader with, with Georgia, Kentucky, and then obviously the big one with, with LSU and Bama. Um, that's the biggest game of the college football season. That is the biggest football game to date of this football season 2018 LSU hosting Alabama on Saturday night although the game Sunday night Packers Patriots is a pretty good one and certainly uh, we've seen some good ones here recently like the Chiefs in the Pats and we're gonna there are a lot of great NFL games down the road I'm, I'm, I'm getting sidetracked here um, in the in the Georgia Florida game at the end of the first half uh, Georgia you know was was basically in a position where they could easily get the ball back at the end of the first half by using their timeouts and at the very end of that first half Florida's got the ball fourth third down and one from their own 36 uh, and they get stopped and Georgia doesn't call a timeout they just let the 40 seconds t you know tick off the clock and Florida punts the ball with 50 seconds left. So the third and one play was with a minute 55 left, and the punt came at 50 seconds. And Georgia had their timeouts left. And so Georgia, instead of getting the ball back with a minute 45 left in the half, they got it back with, or a minute 40 left, they got it back and started their drive with about 48 seconds left from their own 20. And they moved the football down the field. And they got into a first and goal at the Florida five-yard line, and there were six seconds left in the half. There should have been 46 seconds left in the half in that particular spot. It's just always beyond me that these coaches don't understand how to create and maximize possessions in a game by using their timeouts. The bottom line is, is that Georgia basically ended up kicking a field goal on second and goal from the five with, uh, with six seconds left. With six seconds left, and they went to halftime with two timeouts. If they had used those timeouts on defense, if they had used them even better on offense during that final drive, but in really in particular on defense. Remember, on defense, you can't control when 
the play starts because you don't have the ball. So you, you control that by using your timeouts. Georgia should have had a touchdown at the end of the half, or at the very least, they should have been able to comfortably run a second and third down play at the end of the half before kicking a field goal. They settled for the field goal. They went to the breakup 13-7 to uh, and promptly uh, fell behind on the first drive of the second half, 14-13. But they should have had a really good chance to go up 17-7. That's a major blunder uh, by George's coaching staff to not call Kirby Smart to not call timeouts on defense after a third down stop and to let 40 seconds go off the clock is is pure clock management negligence. Um, James Franklin in the Penn State game on Saturday against Iowa, they won that game. Boy, Penn State's actually been disappointing this year. I think a lot of people thought, you know, going into that Ohio State game that they were a national championship or they were a Final Four contender, and they lost that devastating game to Ohio Ohio State, the game that I was at uh, in State College. Um, They lost the following week or two weeks later after the bye to Michigan State at home. Now, they've they've won back-to-back games against Indiana and Iowa, but really could have lost both of those games. But at the uh, end of the game, um, Penn, uh, end of the first half, uh, Penn State is uh, in position to kick a field goal. And James Franklin takes a timeout, uh, not on offense to save more time to get into better field goal range, but to basically try to psych his kicker out. He called a timeout before his kicker lined up to kick the field goal at the end of the half. And even the announcers were a little bit puzzled and said, what are you doing? You trying to psych your kicker out? Well, it, it didn't work. He tried to psych his kicker out. It didn't work, and his kicker made the field goal uh, to tie the game 17-17 at the end of the first half. But that, that was an odd circumstance. He, he had not called timeouts to save more time to potentially go for more um, than just a field goal. Uh, he seemed to, to be pleased to settle for the field goal and then used his timeout to try to psych his kicker out. Uh, end of the game in the Rams game. I, I talked about this a little bit on Monday. I think Sean McVay playing for the field goal at the end was insane. That didn't make any sense. The The probability of them winning the game with a field goal at the two-minute mark, 29-27, was one in four. It really was. I don't. I don't know what the, the ESPN win probability percentage said in that moment. I don't watch that stuff. Uh, gut feel when they ran the ball on second and third down and settled for the field goal. I know they were second and twenty after the penalty. I understand that they went to second and twenty at the Green Bay twenty-three. But when they decided to run Gurley twice and kick the field goal, to me that was a losing strategy. That was a that 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 really decreased their probability of winning the game. As you were watching that game, did anybody that was watching that game feel like Green Bay down two wouldn't have gotten in field goal range had they had the football starting first and ten from their own twenty-five with two minutes to go? I mean, I, I don't care how many timeouts they had or didn't have. It, 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 they, all they needed was three. It was Aaron Rodgers. So it was very surprising to me that Sean McVay really settled for the field goal. Gurley for four yards and then Todd Gurley for three yards. So we went from second and 20 to third and 17 to fourth and 14, and they kicked a field goal with 2.05 left in the game to take a 29-27 to lead. That was a losing strategy. 
I would. Uh, Sean is brilliant. I love him uh, as a, as a head coach. Uh, I got to know him a little bit when he was here. I had some great conversations with Sean, uh, with Cooley, and sometimes without him. Uh, I would if I if I, the next time I see him, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask him, why did you run the ball twice instead of get super aggressive and think in terms of you had to not only score a touchdown, but you needed to make a two point conversion to really you know give yourself the best chance to win. Now they won the game. They won the game because Ty Montgomery made a terrible error, uh, one of selfishness, as it turns out, and the Packers traded him yesterday. But uh, if if Ty Montgomery doesn't lose his mind, then Green Bay wins 30-29 to in a walk-off, more likely than not. Maybe Mason Crosby misses the field goal, although I don't think he's missed since the Detroit game where he missed all those kicks. I think he's been perfect since. Uh, but that that was a a curious strategy running the ball. I, you know, on the second and twenty, maybe you run to try to get a chunk play, and then on third down you throw it into the end zone. But um, the Rams, as good as they are, to get conservative in that spot, I thought was a real losing strategy, um, and it didn't hurt them because of Montgomery. But boy, the chances of them losing that game thirty to twenty nine with that strategy were pretty high in that moment. All right, uh, a couple things I want to get to before we finish up um, the show uh, today. Uh, a couple things that I haven't mentioned from just over the weekend. We, we saw what Golden State did the other night with Clay Thompson going off, and Golden State, you know, this this start that they're off to right now, uh, seven and one, and the points they're scoring in these games. I mean, 149 the other night against the Bulls, 144 against the Wizards. They had 92 in the first half against. Uh, the uh, the Bulls the other night and Clay Thompson's uh, record-setting three-point shooting performance. Um, a game from over the weekend, and I've just had this in my notes um, that I did not mention. They were uh, in, in a pretty good close game against the Knicks on Friday night, maybe Saturday night. I think it was Friday night. They outscored the New York Knicks in the fourth quarter, 47-16. to 16. 47 to 16, they outscored the Knicks in the fourth quarter. They were down going into the fourth quarter, and they said, Enough of this. Kevin Durant scored 25 in the fourth quarter as a team. They outscored the Knicks by 31 points in a quarter. I don't think I've ever heard of that. Uh, Just like the other night against the Bulls. How many times is a team up by 40 points at halftime? They, it was 42 points. They were up 42 points at halftime. But the other night, they outscored the Knicks 30 by 31 in a quarter in what was a competitive close game. Uh, the next thing uh, I wanted to mention is I got a tweet, uh, a lot of tweets, obviously, after Kirk Cousins game on Sunday night against the Saints where uh, all of you geniuses out there blamed him for the loss like uh, Adam Thielen's fumble at the end of the first half didn't have anything to do with it Um, but uh, from LL Fresh please I challenge you to dig out how many career pick sixes Kirk has given up I challenge you and I'm telling you there are like six exclamation points 
uh, in this tweet. So I went back, and it's not an easy stat to find. you got to go game by game to figure it out. In his career, the, the pick six the other night when Stefan Diggs did not keep running, um, but of course that's on the quarterback, he's thrown eight pick sixes, but I would say seven because remember Ryan Grant fell down. Remember the Ryan Grant fall down game against the Falcons in overtime? Uh, so I would count it as seven. But if you want to know uh, if I've met the challenge there, LL Fresh, eight career pick sixes. That's a lot. I will grant you that. It is a lot. Uh, I'm still a believer in Kirk Cousins. You don't, you don't think a game like Sunday. If, if you think a Sunday night's game would get me off Kirk Cousins as a, as a top 10 quarterback, top 10 to top 12 quarterback. You're insane. He didn't play poorly Sunday night. And yeah, I read Mike Freeman's column. I don't agree with any of it. Uh, Sunday night, Kirk Cousins was not the problem in Minnesota's loss. He was probably, he was much more of the problem in the loss to Buffalo when he had key turnovers early in the game that really hurt them. But they also couldn't stop uh, anything that Buffalo did in that game. Minnesota is not as good as they were last year. I mean, I'm not making excuses for for Kirk Cousins. It's just a fact. Uh, they were the top run defense in the league last year. There weren't, they're, they're nowhere near that this year. They had a better running game last year. Not much of one, but a better running game with Jarek McKinnon, actually, after Dalvin Cook got hurt, than they have right now with Latavius Murray. Um, they're just not as good a football team as they were last year. Uh, you, you're going to tell me that you really think the difference is Kirk Cousins versus Case Keenum? Have you seen Case Keenum in Denver? Please. No, Denver's uh, Minnesota's just not as good as they were last year. Now, they got Everson Griffin back this past week, and that could be a big difference uh, maker for them moving forward. Um, but just like the Redskins are a much better football team this year, Kirk Cousins is playing for a team that wasn't as good as they were a year ago. The Redskins are much different. They are the second ranked rush defense in the NFL. They were dead last a year ago. They were near the bottom of the league in rush offense a year ago, and they are now number eight overall in the NFL this year. Those are the reasons the Redskins are five and two. Alex Smith uh, not turning the ball over is a contributing factor. I'm, I'm not going to say that it isn't, and I'm not, you know, I'm not off of Alex Smith because I believe that Alex Smith is a good quarterback and he hasn't played well, all right? These wins, really, you can sit there and you can hang your hat on him not turning the ball over. That's a part of it. The bigger part of it is that they have completely shut down the opponent's ability to run the football and they themselves have been able to run the football and they've played very good special teams. Those things are bigger factors in their 5-2 and two record right now than their quarterback who hasn't been able to hit the ocean from a boat not turning the ball over. But I'm not minimizing the no turnovers because I know it's important and the way they're playing is fine with me right now. I'd like to see more from him and I think we will see more from him. I think he will get better as the year goes on. Real quickly on the trade deadline, the Eagles getting uh, Golden Tate uh, look, the bottom line is the Cowboys in hindsight, and I, I said this when it happened, I thought they overpaid for Amari Cooper. I, I would not have given up a first rounder for Amari Cooper. Some of you, 
You know, some of you tweeted me and said, are you kidding me? You have no idea what that first round pick's going to be. And Amari Cooper is a potential star. I didn't, I loved Amari Cooper coming out of the draft. I did not love Amari Cooper's overall body of work in Oakland. And it could have been Oakland. Uh, you know, it definitely could have been more about Oakland than Amari Cooper, but there was just some, uh, there was body language from Amari Cooper when you watched the Raiders that didn't look great. It looked sort of Josh Doxon-esque to a certain degree. Maybe it'll work out for the Cowboys, but I think what we have learned from that is that they, they overpaid. Meantime, the Eagles getting Golden Tate. Um, they have added an, another receiver. I'll tell you what, to be honest with you, I like the Eagles receivers. I like Alshon Jeffrey. I like Nelson, Al, uh, Nelson Algalor. I think their tight ends are great. I don't know why they felt so compelled, compelled to go out and get Golden Tate. I think their situation at receiver wasn't terrible. I, I do think that Tate's a different type of receiver, especially with the uh, yards after catch. He's really good at that, and that's something they really needed, the guy who could make plays after making the catch. So for that, I can see why they would think that Golden Tate would be that guy. Yeah, look, I, I that's fine, and Golden Tate, to me, is a really good player. I love his competitive level. Um, he's tough. You just talked about it, yards after catch. I'm just saying that, you know, as Carson Wentz gets back into it, and you're, you're starting to see a sign that the Eagles are becoming a much better offensive team. Look, Jacksonville in that game Sunday had a chance to win the game. But in that game, too, the Eagles, you know, the, the, the Eagles moved the football. They ended up with over 400 yards of offense and 24 points. And and it could have been more if Carson, Carson Wentz had a turnover, you know, in the red zone. Uh, you know, in, in the first half of that game. But Jordan Matthews came up with big catches in that game. I like Jeffrey. I like Aguilar. I think Goddard looks like a star. That tight end that they drafted uh, last year. Um, and, and clearly Ertz is already a star. But now you add something else to it. I think their needs were more on defense, especially at corner. Uh, this is going to be, I mean, this is setting up in the division potentially to be a three-team race, but more likely than not, a two-team race between the Eagles and the Redskins with two huge games in December. And the Redskins play the Eagles to finish up the season at home. It's n- right now, to make the prediction, you heard it here first prediction, that the Redskins and Eagles will play for the NFC East on December 30th at FedEx Field, it's not crazy. And maybe the Sunday night game to end the regular season. Not crazy to think that way. I think the Eagles are going to be a threat here. And I didn't feel that way last week. I think Sunday was really, really big for them. Now they get the bye week. They come back off the bye week uh, with the Cowboys. uh, And they have a difficult schedule. If you look at the Eagles' schedule, it's not easy. They still play the Saints, and they play the Saints uh, on the road. They still have the Rams on the road. They still have Houston, um, but they also have four, uh, five division games left, five of them, two against the Cowboys, two against the Redskins, and they still play the Giants uh, at home. Uh, they're going to be a factor uh, in this race in a division that right now isn't going to take, I don't think, more than 10 wins to win. All right, thanks to Aaron, thanks to Cooley, thanks to Scott Jackson, thanks to all of you. Uh, A reminder that um, you can follow us on Facebook, you can follow us on Instagram, we also have a show Twitter page, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, at Kevin Sheehan DC, and I tweet out a lot about the show and when the show is up and when the show is coming out, etc., etc. Have a great day, back tomorrow, Van Pelt will be with us and we'll do more 
on Maryland uh, and what happened there uh, with Scott uh, tomorrow. Tommy will be in as well. Have a great day, everybody. Take care.